we continue in our study of the book of Daniel. I don't know about you, but when I watch a movie, I always want to be the hero. I want to be the good guy. I don't want to be the bad guy. I always identify, rightfully or not, with the good guy. So that means I am Daniel LaRusso. I am Rocky Balboa. I am Prince T'Challa. I am Rudy. Uh, I am Frodo. I am Groot. I want to be the good guys. You want to be the good guys, never the bad guys. And that same type of mindset might carry over into our Bible reading as well. So when we read a particular story, we identify with the good guy. I want to be Moses before the Red Sea. I want to be David before Goliath. I want to be Esther before the king. I never want to be a biblical bad guy. And there are times in our study of the book of Daniel when it would be right for us to put ourselves in Daniel's sandals, to identify as Daniel in the story, and to learn from him in his model. But not today. Today, we have to put ourselves in the seat of the vile king Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel has a message to deliver to the king. And in order for us to experience this passage right... We don't want to study it from Daniel's standpoint. We want to study it from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. In this story today, unfortunately, we are the bad guys, but the message to us is an unbelievable message of grace and goodness as we're given a picture of the infinite greatness of our God. Now, there are ways in which you are definitely not like Nebuchadnezzar. You've never led your army to invade another nation and laid siege to their capital and then forced their people to march in exile back to your homeland. You've never done that, I suppose, anyways, you've never done that. Uh, But there are other ways in which we might identify with Nebuchadnezzar very, very closely. For example, every single one of us, like this king, we need to know God deeply. We need to know him truly. Every one of us, We need the message of God applied to our hearts and our lives. And that's what we find here with Nebuchadnezzar. If you were to strip away the palace, the gold, the army, the power, the ego, what you're left with is a person who needs God and a person whom God speaks to. That's you and I this morning. If we sit in Nebuchadnezzar's seat, we hear the voice of God given to us. We need to know more and more of our God, our infinite, uncreated, omniscient, transcendent, eternally glorious God. And so if if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, then you've picked the right day to battle the rain and to come into this room because Daniel chapter 2 is speaking directly to you. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for many years, then Good for you for coming to church today because this passage speaks directly to you. God's riches and beauty and glory and wonder are inexhaustible. And for us to sit and gaze into infinite glory will never grow old and will only ever enrich our lives and our walk for the brief moments we have left before we meet him face to face. We get a prized seat this morning though an unlikely one, when we sit where Nebuchadnezzar sits and we hear the voice of God speaking to us. 
So Daniel's message today is for people who are skeptical, who are searching, who are confused, who are self-righteous. It's a message for all of us. And this story teaches us the greatness of God. And that's a game changer for kings and commoners alike. What I want to show you in this passage today are three facets of the greatness of God. That's what Daniel's going to give to Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he gives to us as well, a portrait of the greatness of God in three parts. If you were with us last week, you'll remember King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. It has troubled him greatly. He can't make sense of it, and so he calls his magic men together, and he says to all of his magic men advisors, tell me what my dream means. And you remember what they said. They said, well, of course, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar throws them a curveball. You're the magic man. You tell me what my dream is and then you tell me the interpretation or I'm going to chop you up into little bits. They couldn't do it. And so he gives the execution order. And Daniel finds out about it and he gets a little bit of extra time and he goes and he prays with his three friends And in the night, God gives Daniel the answer. We closed out the middle of chapter 2 last week with Daniel praising God. Remember, that passage pushed us to praise God. Not just rush ahead to the answer, but to dwell with him. And so that's where we pick up this morning. Uh, The issue's been challenged by the king. Daniel has received the information from God. And now it's time to go before Nebuchadnezzar with the information. So follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will give him the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, No wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the vision that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these— Your majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. 
wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything, and like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay that peoples will mix with one another but will not hold together just as iron does not mix with fired clay. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshipped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the uh, wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon But Daniel remained at the king's court. You have been given privileged knowledge, this information, a message for the king, a message from God, and it pertains to us just as it does to Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel's interpretation and telling, he gives Nebuchadnezzar and us a picture of the greatness of God. I want to show that to you in three parts. The first picture of the greatness of God in this passage is this. We learn that God's knowledge is limitless. God's knowledge is limitless. This is a statement true about God, true about his, we would, we would use the term omniscience to describe his vast knowledge. And knowing that about God does something to us. So our passage opens with Daniel coming before King Nebuchadnezzar. He has the information from God, the details of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, as well as the interpretation. Now, if if you and I were writing this story, uh, we would go straight from Daniel standing before the king to delivering the information. We might not even include verses 24 through 30. But what Daniel does in that very first section, in his very first moments before the king, is he doesn't get straight to the solution, but rather he pushes God to the forefront for the king to see. Daniel's primary goal here is not just to save his skin by giving the message to the king, by giving him the solution. He wants to make sure the king doesn't just get the answer, but he gets the God who holds all the answers as well in the process. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is looking for a man to give him an answer. And that's what he asks at the very beginning of this interaction with Daniel. Verse 26, are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel said, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he's uh, asked about. 
But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Look, Daniel's so careful to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar does not give Daniel credit for the answer that's to come. But he wants to make sure that God gets the credit. Again, look at the middle of verse 29. Daniel says, The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king, and you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Daniel always portrays humility, always exalts God, always puts God first. It's different from the little glimpse of the character of Arioch we saw at the very start of the passage. Remember, Arioch is the executioner. And Daniel goes to Arioch and says, get me to the king, I've got the answer. And what does Arioch say when he takes Daniel in front of the king? I have found the man with the answer. <laughs> no, you didn't, Arioch. He found you. That's what happened. But when Daniel stands before Nebuchadnezzar, he wants to make sure the king knows. This is not, I don't have this information because I'm the wisest of all, or I'm more magic than your other magic men. I have this information because there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. The king's looking for an answer from a man, but Daniel gives him the God who holds every answer. Nebuchadnezzar does not get the answer without the Almighty. He does not get the solution without the sovereign. He doesn't get the revelation without the revealer. Do you see where I'm going here? He wants an answer. Daniel gives him God. And don't we see a reflection of our own hearts in this scene? How often do we value the fix over the Father? Like Nebuchadnezzar, there's so many situations in our lives that we want answers to. But God wants our hearts. We have so many whys, so many what next. How come this happened? Why did this happen to me? What's going to happen next? And is it wrong to ask those questions, or is it wrong to ask God to fix the problems that we have? Well, of course it's not wrong. He delights to meet our needs, even the smallest of needs. And he wants us to call on him in our hour of need. But look, I know my heart. I know that sometimes I have wanted the solution to such a degree that, that I have treated God just like my cosmic butler. I've treated him more like my car mechanic than my heavenly father. Like, I love a good mechanic, but I love a good mechanic only insofar as he can fix my car. When he can't fix my problem, it's time for a new mechanic. And my love for God ought to be different than my love for my mechanic. So that my love for God rests in the fact that he has the answer. He is the revealer of mysteries. And I can trust him just knowing that alone. Is he great enough? Compassionate enough? Powerful enough? Knowing enough? For you to trust him even without the answer. He doesn't want to just give us the answer. He wants us to trust him. God's omniscience is not for the sake of our knowledge. It's for the sake of our faith. And so that's what this story calls us to over and over again. It doesn't just give us these random theological bullet points about God's character. It invites us into a relationship with the God who is all-knowing, who knows so much that he knows even the minutia of our lives and our identities. 
you're not unknown to him. He knows you through and through. The God who holds all knowledge so that he can reveal mysteries is the God that knows everything about you, everything about you. He crafted every part of who you are. He's ordered your every step. He knows what tomorrow holds for you, and he's a God of great compassion and love for us. And so when we sit in Nebuchadnezzar's seat and we're told God has all knowledge, he's the revealer of mysteries, he has the answer, but he calls you to love him before you love an answer. Well, there's an invitation for a relationship. And so you probably came in here this morning needing answers, wanting answers. You've got chaos or conflict in your life that you need resolution to. That's not bad to want those things, to want answers. But friend, make sure that your treasure and your adoration is in God, not just in the answer. There's going to be a day when the answers come. There's going to be a day when we know, when this fog is lifted from our eyes, we see him face to face, and it all makes sense. To be the revealer of mysteries doesn't mean he reveals every mystery today. Perhaps part of what makes God gracious and compassionate are the things he withholds from us. And so knowing that he knows it all, knowing that he holds it all, you and I can trust this God and love him knowing that he has the answers in the darkness. God's knowledge is limitless. It calls us to a relationship to trust. Second thing Daniel tells us about God in this story is that God's kingdom is forever. His knowledge is limitless. His kingdom is forever. So verses 31 through 45 are really the meat of the passage. And we can split this large section into two smaller, more manageable sections. Just in general, the headlines would be this. You would have um, the explanation of the dream, and then the interpretation of the dream. So in verses 31 through 35, you would have the explanation of the dream. In verses 36 through 45 is the interpretation of the dream. Remember, Daniel has to tell Nebuchadnezzar this is what the dream was. And so that's what he does first. He explains the contents of the dream. And as I summarize it, I want to show you a picture on the screen uh, that kind of depicts what Nebuchadnezzar saw. This picture is a little weird, but it's what you get when you just do a Google image search for Daniel chapter 2. So we'll take what free gives us, all right? But it, it gets the job done. This was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. His dream was of a massive, colossal, terrifying statue that just appeared out of nowhere. And that statue is made up of five different parts. The head is made out of gold. The chest and arms are made out of silver. The uh, chest and thighs, or excuse me, the stomach and thighs are made out of bronze. The legs are made out of iron. The feet and the toes made out of a mixture of iron and clay. And then a stone breaks off from a mountain, not by any human hand, and that stone comes in and strikes the statue in the feet and all of the statue is obliterated. It blows away like chaff on the summer threshing floor. Just whew, these things that are so permanent, so heavy, so strong, this rock just turns them into dust. That's the dream. And then that rock, that rock becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. What does it mean? 
on this next slide, I've tried to label the different parts, uh, and I know it's a little hard to see, but uh, bear with me here. Uh, here's what Daniel gives us in terms of identifying the various parts of the statue and the dream. He tells us clearly, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So that head of gold symbolizes Babylon, it symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar. And then Daniel says something really bold. He says, after you, another kingdom will come. In other words, Babylon's got a shelf life. And after you, another kingdom will come. And then there's a third kingdom. There's a fourth kingdom. And then there's a fifth kingdom, iron mixed with clay. And then there's this rock that comes and blows it all up. That rock is God's kingdom that is established forever and ever. That's what all of it means. Now, here's where our investigative juices begin to flow. And we say, all right, we got Babylon at the top. We got God, the rock. But what about these other kingdoms? Why, how can we identify who, who these other kingdoms are? Well, after Babylon, there's another kingdom to come. In fact, the book of Daniel shows us that. It's the kingdom of Persia. So maybe the second kingdom is Persia. And the third kingdom, who could that be? Well, the next big world power would be Greece. We'll put Greece in there. What about the fourth kingdom? That could be, uh, I don't know, Rome. Rome follows Greece. They're the next world power. What about kingdom number five? Oh, clearly, uh, two items that don't mix, iron and clay. That's the United States of America in our current divided political climate. <laughs> and if you send twenty nine ninety five, I'll sell you my book that explains it all. <laughs> there have been di- various attempts to identify these different kingdoms on this side of Daniel's life, but let me, I'll let you in on a little secret. It doesn't matter. The rock crushes them all. You put whatever name you want next to those kingdoms. The rock's going to take care of it. What do we know about the rock kingdom from our passage? A writer named Dale Ralph Davis uh, throws out five really quick bits of information to help us understand what the rock kingdom is like. On this next slide, I'll give them to you. Uh, First of all, the rock kingdom is indestructible. In verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's indestructible. Second, it's final. And his kingdom will not be left to another people. His is the ultimate Third, it's overwhelming, verse 44. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. Fourth, it's supernatural. Verse 45, you saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it. This is not human doing. This is God stepping into creation. Fifth, it will enter through catastrophe. Verse 45, it crushed the iron, the bronze, the fired clay, the silver, and the gold. In short, The kingdom of God is everything the kingdoms of this world are not. And the kingdom of God is everything our tiny personal kingdoms are not. So what does Nebuchadnezzar's dream teach us? What does the interpretation of the dream say to you and I? There's a lot of places we could go here. Here's a few that feel really important to me. Uh, First of all, it's important that you and I understand this, that every kingdom of man will crumble. Every single one. Even our own country has a date with destruction of some sort. There's no footnote that exempts the United States of America here. 
And so we shouldn't allow ourselves to become too impressed with the accomplishments of men or nations. Does that mean that we shouldn't care about the direction of our country? Well, of course not. Look, Daniel teaches us how to walk fully surrendered to God while also living for the good of your country at the same time. Daniel lives for the good of Babylon. In fact, if you were to skip ahead to chapter 4, shocking, you'll find Daniel express compassion, even affection for Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel walks with God. He's full-on God's man, but he works for the good of Babylon as well. So Christians of all people should be great citizens, should work for the good of their respective countries. But Daniel chapter 2 reminds us that every country, every kingdom, every ruler has an end date on God's calendar. The flags of no nations fly above the throne of God. So our citizenship is in that distant country. Our allegiance is with this God above all else. We hold nations and kingdoms uh, loosely while we walk firmly in the kingdom of God. second thing this dream teaches us is it gives some solid assurance to God's people. So let's imagine you're hearing this story not as Nebuchadnezzar on a throne, but as an exiled Hebrew living under the tyranny of Babylon. What does this dream do for you? It's got to pump you up. It's got to make you excited. God wins, not Marduk, not Nebuchadnezzar, not anyone else. Yahweh wins, and with him go his people. And Daniel speaks to the absolute certainty of this. It doesn't matter what kingdom you find yourself in, what situation you find yourself in. Daniel, at the end of verse 45, said, the dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. There's a day that statue gets obliterated and God's kingdom is established fully and forever. And so Christians Christians can step into this world with a rock-solid confidence in the God who holds all things, orders all things, is powerful above all. All things. Christian confidence is not arrogance, but it's the knowledge that God works all things out for his glory and for our good. And so as we stand before uncertain times, trials, difficulties of all types, we can have confidence in God who takes care of everything. So if, if, I, were, if I were a single, single adult uh, who was very lonely, and prayed and desired to be in relationship with another Christian. Uh, I would walk in confidence, though my need is yet unmet, knowing that God has ordered my steps. My life is not going to be defined by loneliness or lack, but by the sufficiency of God who holds all things, including my heart. If I'm a family who struggles with infertility, that's such a crushing weight to carry. But I can step into those days in confidence in the God who's going to destroy all this brokenness, bring an end to all of this at some point. And even while my questions are unanswered, my, my problem is yet resolved, 
I can walk in confidence into God who knows me and who has all power for me in these situations. If I'm a high school student, crushed under the weight of my classes and college applications and making decisions and tests and all of these things, I'm going to walk in confidence because I know that my value is not dictated by the colleges that accept me, but by the Christ who gave everything for me. And when we see the nation's rage, we don't need to tremble. We don't need to fear. We just say, oh, I've seen this dream before, and I know how it ends. No matter what news media says, no matter what this one does or that one does, it doesn't matter. I know how this ends. God's kingdom is established forever, and I'm not going to tremble. Look, I don't know how people make it in life without God. If we didn't believe Daniel 2.44, I don't know how we step out the front door in the morning. It is God's grace to us that he has all power, a kingdom that's established forever, and he holds us firmly in that. Daniel's shown us these things about God so far. He has all knowledge. Uh, He has a kingdom that lasts forever. The third and final thing Daniel teaches us about God's greatness is that God's worth is unmatched. His worth is unmatched. So Daniel gives the the, uh, content of the dream. He gives the interpretation of the dream. And now it's Nebuchadnezzar's turn to respond. And you you can feel the awkwardness dripping off the page at this point. Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face and worships who? Daniel. And he calls for sacrifices and incense to be burned to whom? Daniel. That's not what Daniel wants. I promise it's not. But this is how Nebuchadnezzar responds. Nebuchadnezzar has so far to go before he understands the goodness of this covenant God. But he will. He's going to get there. But for now, he has this head knowledge that's disconnected from a heart knowledge of God. In verse 47, he says some right things about God. He says, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, revealer of mysteries. Look, those things are true. But what we would want to hear Nebuchadnezzar saying in this moment is, my God. Not your God, this is my God. But he's not there just yet. Kind of reminds me of the book of Amos, God's indictment against his own people. Uh, With your lips you praise me, but your hearts are far from me. That's what we have here in Nebuchadnezzar. He says the right things, but his heart is not in covenant with God at this point. He holds on to his tiny, finite kingdom. I think Nebuchadnezzar is jazzed to learn. He's the head of gold. Woohoo! Head of gold. Hey, it's going to come to an end. (laughs) Today, though, head of gold. I'll take my tiny pile of treasure. If you have that dream and get that interpretation, the push should be to insert yourself under the sovereignty of the rock kingdom. Not to hold on to your little head of gold that's going to blow away like chaff one of these days. Nebuchadnezzar misses it in all of this. He celebrates Daniel. He rewards him, rewards him generously. But imagine that meant some sort of wealth was given to Daniel. He was also given position, authority, promotion in the kingdom so that Daniel now has authority over people uh, in the kingdom of Babylon. Daniel also makes sure that his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are present with him 
in this scene, uh, make sure that they also get rewarded as well. And so you and I might say, hey, good for Daniel. Look at the blessings God is giving him. Look, he has now more wealth and more authority. Think about it. He came into this uh, country with nothing, and now he has money, and now he has position. But here's the question we've got to stop and ask. Is wealth really a reward when we've just seen the head of gold get blown to smithereens. And as for Daniel's authority, his position in Babylon, I wonder, is that God blessing Daniel or is that God blessing Babylon? See, Daniel's treasure is not in the little trinkets that Nebuchadnezzar gives him. Daniel's treasure is in his God. So whether he's home in Jerusalem or on march into exile or he's sitting in a seat of authority in the palace in Babylon or he's thrown into the lion's den, Daniel has everything when he has God. You know, it's a horrible thing to be wealthy in the world's eyes and yet to be spiritually impoverished. You can have every worldly success and like Nebuchadnezzar, just hug your head of gold knowing there's an end to come to all of it. And what foolishness. Your soul is worth so much more than that. In this story, we are called to treasure God above all else. Not to hold on to our tiny kingdoms or take whatever Nebuchadnezzar can give us uh, out of his pocket change, but to treasure God above everything else. He's infinitely valuable, infinitely beautiful. What a horrible thing to have worldly authority and yet to be spiritually inept. God calls us to live for that kingdom that's above everything else because he's worth it. He's infinitely glorious. He is perfectly beautiful. He's the treasure that never ends and never ceases. He will never let you down. He never ceases to satisfy He fills you to overflowing over and over and over again. Treasure the Lord. So what have we learned about God and his greatness through Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Well, uh, we've learned that his knowledge is limitless. We've learned that his kingdom is forever. We've learned that his, his glory is unmatched. On the campus of Yale University, I haven't seen it. I've read about this. Uh, there's a library, the Beinecke Rare Book Library. And in front of the library is a sort of sunken garden. It's an art installation. And it's not a garden like you and I would think garden. It's, it's like a courtyard, and it's covered in white marble. And there are three figures in the marble courtyard. One figure is a large pyramid, also made out of marble, And the artist who designed this, uh, he said the pyramid represents the passage of time. And then in another corner of the courtyard is another large marble statue. It's sort of donut-shaped or tire-shaped, and and it's up on its end. It's upright. And the artist says this figure represents energy. And then there's one more statue in the other corner and it is a cube shaped like a die and it's sitting on one of its points as if it's about to tip one way or the other and the artist says this represents chance so here we have time and energy and chance and according to the artist these are the three things that are the major influencers of the human condition 
But Christians know something that Yale doesn't know. We know that there is a God who knows and orders the course of history down through the rise and ruins of kingdoms. And he does that until he sets up his own kingdom that will never be destroyed. And we know this not because we're wiser than people at Yale or any place else on planet Earth, but we know it because there's a God in heaven who is the revealer of mysteries. And through his son, he has shown us his kingdom and his way to eternity with him. So what do you do when you stand before a God whom we've seen this morning who is omniscient, who is omnipotent, and who is eternally glorious? What do you do when this picture is laid before you? The God of omniscience, omnipotence, eternal glory, eternal glory. what do you do when you stand before him? You don't stand before him. You kneel and you praise. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us a seat to hear and learn from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And there's never a time in our lives when we're better off without a picture of your grandeur and your greatness. Our eyes are so easily dulled by the trials of life, uh, our affections easily wooed by tiny trinkets and worldly treasures. And so thank you for the grace that you show us and that you call us again to see you as best we can in our finite condition, to see you infinitely knowing and powerful and glorious. Lord, help us to learn the lesson Nebuchadnezzar struggled to learn in this chapter and to respond by giving our hearts to you not just treating you like the fixer, but coming to you as our Father. And so this morning, would you make it clear to those in here that don't know you as their Savior that the solution for their sin and their brokenness and their tiny, finite kingdoms is to put their trust in the one who died for them and rose again. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who have unanswered questions, who have wondering hearts, Lord, give us your peace, your contentment, even while the answers remain elusive. Let us find our satisfaction in you. Let us trust you, that you hold us in the dark, and that your kingdom is one that lasts forever. Father, thank you for giving us citizenship in that kingdom. And we give you praise and glory, for you are infinitely worthy of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.